Katie Herzog, what's up? Hey, Jesse, can I read you a tweet? Please do. I love when you read tweets. You love tweets. This is like bedtime stories for you. Mm -hmm. Okay, so a bunch of our listeners uh, pointed me to this, and when I read it to you, you will will know why. Okay, so I'm not going to say the name of the account. It's a pretty small account. The avatar is like a anime, not an anime furry, but like a little anime, anime kind of character. It begins, trigger warning, sex, turf rhetoric, trans misogyny, advice, asking for emotional labor. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Wait, Katie, should I be listening to this? Yeah, what I'm triggered by is that this person spelled the word labor with a U. It's frightfully British. So it starts out. So we found out yesterday that one of our headmates, a lesbian, says she isn't attracted to women with penises, question mark, question mark, or any C-A-M-A-B. What do you think that is? I mean, AMAB is assigned male at birth. ACAB is all cops are bastards. Cops assigned male at birth. That's that's what it has to be. I can't think of anything else. <laughs> it continues. The rest of the lesbians in our system are attracted to all women and non-binary people. So I'm confused and I don't know what to do. She was even low-key spouting turf rhetoric and saying stuff about how her sexuality is about sex and not gender. Obviously, we went off and told her how transmisogynistic this is. And after a long and exhausting argument, she ended up saying she's open to learning and she's sorry for being transmisogynistic, but she doesn't know how to make herself attracted to someone with a penis or enjoy sex with one. Does anyone have any advice for that? And it ends, thank you in advance, and I'm so sorry for asking for labor, but I don't know what, what where else to turn to. Hashtag lesbian, hashtag help lol, hashtag genital preference. Okay, so Jesse, how how would you interpret this? The headmates in our system, one of them, it sounds like is a turf. I assume that the term headmate was like a British equivalent of a roommate, but it turns out that's not what a headmate is. <laughs> Uh, I think I, I think I got that when I heard it. Is it, is it DID related? It is. Please explain. So last week we did an episode about dissociative identity disorder on TikTok. This is what used to be called multiple personality disorder, uh, which is the idea of like yourself containing multiple different personalities or alters. Hey, we all can t- contain multitudes. I do, I do not contain multitudes. I contain <laughs> everyone a, but a you. Unity. Um, so it seems like this person is saying that one of her alters uh, has the, I don't want to sugarcoat this the horrific belief that she should be able to like base who she has sex with on their bodies which is just really uh, akin to nazism as far as i'm concerned and this person is living inside the system this is a part of the system so this person he she they i'm just gonna go with they um is you know is forced to like there's a turf in her head (laughs) there's a turf in my head the classic horror movie can you imagine going to a therapist? This is going to be the sort of thing that like woke there. They do exorcist for the turf in your head. What I found so interesting about this is like so much of the part of the ritual of being a good white liberal is saying on the inside, I'm super racist and I'm going to expunge this. This is like that, but mixed with DID stuff where like one of my alters has um, – has tra- the transphobia. She's caught the transphobia bug and we're going to do something about that. I, I just imagine explaining to a normal person, setting aside the alters thing, imagine explaining this problem. I have a friend who's a lesbian who doesn't want to do anything to dicks. How would that, how would like a normal person respond to that? It, it's so inconceivable to anyone who isn't too online. Right. Anybody who's not on Twitter would be like, duh. Don't give, Males blowjobs? I mean, that's one solution. It's right. That was pretty amazing. Yeah. So if you go to this person's profile, 
They have uh, their pinned tweet is a it's this thread of alt like that describes all of their different alters. And uh, <laughs> can I just read you my favorite one? Please do. Okay. So this is uh, <laughs> this is Persephone. And all of these altars are like they're the photos are like not photos they're cartoon drawings of these altars. So Persephone's nineteen. She's a memory holder. Oh wait, not she. I'm sorry. Uh, Persephone's pronouns are any all wa v o i. She is an aerospace sapphic, which means that she, sorry aero sapphic, which means that she's aromantic, asexual, but also sapphic, so a lesbian. Um, and, uh, this is a quote from Persephone Voa says, I struggle to talk, but I'm trying to get better. Still not a fan, but feel free to play all the color game with me. Ask me what color, smell, taste, certain things are. Isn't that, is that synesthesia? That's like a whole other mental condition, right? I mean, I, I think that there's no doubt that these people or this person does have mental illness. Do they actually have DID? That I don't know, but there is something fucking going on here. Or How many how many alters do they have? Okay, so there are in this thread, it looks like uh there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight alters. I it's also po- one of them goes by it actually. A gender fluid trans pan lesbian goes by uh it and also has bpd like yeah no shit um i was i was gonna say like based on the one alter you told me about what you just read sounded like such an exhausting person to be around so i was hoping the other seven were just like yeah i'm just an attorney (laughs) yeah i work at ace hardware yeah just yeah that's that's sort of my whole thing i have a family i have a happy stable home life i love to grill i love to go to church on sundays (laughs) just normal oh these poor people you know, it's it's also possible that this is a total troll that this person, you know, is like making a joke. And in which case, it's a pretty convincing one. I guess if I was part of a community where it was generally like unclear whether members of my community were trolling or, or writing in earnest, that would concern me a little bit. I would ask certain questions about my community. I think I think that might actually be your community, Jesse. Hey. All right, what podcast is this? This is Blocked and Reported. I am the one and only, there's only one of me, Jesse Single. And I'm Katie Herzog. And today, what are we talking about? Uh, I have a correction, and then we're going to talk about an article. Another one? Another two in a row. One. Is it two in a row? I don't know. Was the last one a me or an us? This was definitely a me. Eh. I think I think they're all a you, but go ahead. How dare you? And then we're going to talk about a letter we got from a uh, listener that we think will be relevant to a fair number of you. An email, technically, not a letter. No one sends letters. And then we're going to talk about... What was the last thing, Katie? I'm blinking. I'm going to tell you a story about something that happened this week in TV writer Twitter. For the love of God, I hope it does not involve alters. <laughs> this one, unfortunately, does not involve alters. The system is just one person. All right. Well, look forward to that. Uh, the correction was just we we did a patrons only episode. I highly recommend, like all our patrons only episodes, about Andrea James, a trans activist who has done a little bit of stalking and has built creepily personal uh, pages about both of us on her websites. Toward the end of our patrons only episode. I said that the Emerson Collective had given money to her transphobia project, which is this grifty thing she raised 23 grand for. That was totally wrong. It was just a brain fart. Uh, Emerson Collective is this or is it company, I guess, that own, has an ownership stake in the Atlantic. Uh, someone emailed me after that episode went up and was like, 
uh, they worked, this person who emailed me worked for a uh, philanthropy oriented outlet and wanted to maybe write about this. And as soon as I saw them say I'd said that, I was like, I screwed that up. That's not true. So I corrected it. Um, how dare you? How dare I? And then even though I immediately corrected it in a like a very obvious way on the Patreon and deleted myself saying it, Andrew James said I like stealth corrected it and tried to hide the error. You know what that means? What? Andrea James is a patron. <laughs> I do like it. <laughs> I suspect she has a mole, but that would be amazing if she was giving it. Turns out she's giving us 10 grand a month. Andrea James also, and people who listen to the Patreon episode will also know about this, she commissioned these grotesque caricatures of the two of us. Yours is deeply anti-Semitic. It also does look like your face, which is anti-Semitic. You have a very anti-Semitic face. <laughs> and mine is just like ugly. I just look like a fucking... <laughs> Yours is like... <laughs> more like so in my case she took an, an admittedly big nose and like blew it up like i'd gotten stung by a bee in your case i don't know what happened she just like remixed it through an ugliness filter it's so good she took my face and she merged me with beavis and butthead <laughs> okay so so after the patreon episode went up she tweeted uh she tweeted this I always feel bad for those who share a name with a terrible person. That's why I commissioned an illustration of the lovely and talented trans-positive artist Katie Herzog to help distinguish her from the pathetic troll who is none of those things. (laughs) The only person I feel worse for is my friend Jeffrey Epstein at Disney. That is a bit worse than being named Katie Herzog. Imagine being inflated with with such scumbags through no fault of your own. I actually happen to know the other Katie Herzog because we we share a, a Google alert in common. And so at one point she emailed me and introduced herself. And it turns out we actually like know some people in common. Nice. Um, so yes, she is. Uh, she got lucky enough to be also featured on Andrea James' website. I found two things funny about this follow up, and I, I, I am self conscious about giving Andrea James more attention. One thing that's funny is that the uh, say what you will about my actual nose, the caricature of me does look anti Semitic, like it's just right out there in the open. So for her to openly tweet it is just an interesting strategy. The other element of interesting strategy is she raised $23,000 for a project that is two years old, two years past her her stated due date. Um, and she's just openly talking about how she's spending money on caricatures right. of her en- enemies and, right. and one of her friends. I don't, I don't get it. I hope she has these framed and she puts them up in her house. Me too. There's just a gallery of pictures of everybody that she hates. This has been a feud watch with Katie and Jesse. I have behind me like a giant bulletin board of all our feuds and how they connect to one another. It's a map. It's, it's a, a map. map. Uh, all right. Should we move on to the actual meat of the show? Let's do it. Okay. So should I, uh, why don't I read this letter first? You want to start with that or the other thing? Sure. Okay. So this email came in. I'm going to fuzz some of their details. I did check. They, they had a Twitter account that matched the details they gave me. They told me exactly where they work. Here's what they said. Jesse. <laughs> Don't read this part. Congrats congrats on Rogan. That is literally how she started. Unnecessary. Fuck you. Okay. (laughs) I really want to say thanks for all you do. I really want to say thanks for all you, Katie, and folks like Matt Taibbi, Barry Weiss, etc. do in speaking out against these issues surrounding a suppression of discussion, debate, good faith criticism, etc. I hope this can be off the record as I'm incredibly fearful to even be reaching out seeking advice in the event that this would trace back to me. I did subsequently ask her for permission to read this and I said I wouldn't give away her personal details. I'm reaching out because I work at a major national outlet and have increasingly felt the chilling effects of how illiberal my progressive colleagues are. I'm hesitant to do what I consider basic tenets of my job, critically question things, ask difficult questions that may go against or reveal truths that are counter to a progressive vision. Disclaimer. 
I think a majority of my colleagues still uphold and maintain our core journalistic tenets, but there's an increasing group that has no qualms about throwing these standards out the window to advance their worldview in the name of social justice and equity. Uh, She adds in a um, parenthetical, I consider myself to be a left-leaning independent. I don't have a following and I genuinely enjoy and like the security of being part of an established institution like mine. I know this is one of the reasons you and others signed the, quote, infamous frowny face in parentheses Harper's letter. I'm wondering what advice, if any, you have to journalists without platforms who fear the impacts of this and are fearful of a career costing misstep. I can only imagine how busy you are, but would love to hear your thoughts further, whether directly or on the podcast. Thanks in advance, uh, this person. Um... I thought this was worth reading out loud because I've I I'm sure you're in the same boat, Katie. But I've heard from a lot of people in journalism in this uh, general position. Yeah, absolutely, very common. And this question of like what to do to fight back against it, and I thought she phrased what it is fairly well. Basically, sort of illiberal uh, beliefs that are antithetical toward journalism and the the sort of skepticism and critical thinking it's supposed to uh, entail is an interesting question. Well. Where would you start advising a young person such as this, Katie? Learn to code. <laughs> Just leave journalism. This is a terrible thing to say, but in a position like this, like she has job security. I assume it's a she. Or can I say that? Yeah, it's a she. So she has job security. So if she wants that, if she wants to stay in an institution, then my advice would be keep your fucking head down and don't make waves. And I hate to say that because this is one of the reasons that we're in this situation that we're in. But if that's what you need, and I think it also, it depends on like, do you have children? Do you have a trust fund? Like, do you need this job to pay your rent or your mortgage? Or do you have some other sort of backup plan? Yeah. I mean, I I don't think this person should make a big stink of it or like angrily complain. But as they point out, as they point out, I mean, she thinks most of her colleagues are basically on her page. And I think this is a persistent thing in a lot of these settings. I I was thinking about how... um, We'll link back to our our coverage of the Donald McNeil thing at the New York Times. The short version is he was basically forced out for ridiculous reasons, including mentioning the N-word in a context where it made sense to, on a student trip. At a KKK rally. At a KKK rally, (laughs) where it made sense. So there's nothing uh, related to his actual performance as a journalist. And during that, 150 of his colleagues signed an insane letter to the bosses trying to reinvestigate him. That's what his own colleagues did. And... That sounds like a lot, but 150 is just a fraction of the people who work at the Times. And I think the fact that like the sort of moral crusaders in these outlets are so willing to organize and to leak shit and to play dirty and they like really want to get what they want is a sign that there has to be like more of a collective effort among the normies to to say no to them because because that's important. And I, I think there might be ways to do that. Uh, like what? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, okay. So during during the McNeil thing, I know that like – and I forget that this was reported or what someone told me, but basically like some people who are unhappy with management's treatment of McNeil said so. I'm curious whether they thought of doing their own letter countering the other letter because it's a – if one side is willing, even if they're a minority, to make a lot of noise about something, but the other side is all worried about sticking their head up and then getting investigated by HR themselves – you'll never be able to push back against this bullshit. So I think there has to maybe be more collective action. I mean, does that make sense? Yeah. When you were at The Stranger, what, what was the breakdown of like who actually believed this shit versus who wanted to be a real journalist? Uh, in the newsroom, I think it was every – I think there were – let's see. I think the vast majority were true believers and then there was me and then there were 
maybe one or two people who just sort of kept quiet. But the vast majority of true believers. Uh, but this is also like this is an all weekly. Yeah. This is in Seattle. This is not like a USA Today newsroom in Oklahoma. Yeah. This, this person, for what it's worth, works at a very mainstream, very normie oriented outlet. So I would imagine what they're saying is true, that a lot of people are are on their side. Um the other thing that I, I noticed, I mean, I think the diff, most difficult thing in a situation like that is to figure out who their allies are. And I know that like totally over the last two or three years, I've come to realize more and more people in journalism have my general beliefs about what journalism should be. It, I couldn't always identify them because people are afraid of sticking their neck out. This is going to sound weird. And this is exactly the, the, the tool that is abused by people who hate us. But if you do a little bit of tracking, <laughs> this sounds so lame of who likes what tweet, you will be surprised what you find. Like pick a colleague, especially a colleague who does not seem to have strong opinions on this stuff and see what tweets they're liking. Like there have been a number of cases where I've noticed someone has quote unquote heterodox or problematic views on this stuff because I see what tweets of mine they like. That was It was as simple as that. Totally. I've had the same experience, but this can come back and haunt you. Like when Andy Mills, friend of the pod Andy Mills, was getting canceled by the New York Times, one of the things that was going around were these screenshots of tweets that he liked, including tweets of mine that were proof that he is bad. The same thing happened with Mark Andreessen, the, the venture capitalist uh, Silicon Valley money guy. Someone, what's that guy's name? Ian Higgins, Owen Higgins. Oh, um, God, that guy, yeah. That guy, Evergreen grad, which tells you everything you need to know. Um, he wrote a piece. It was called like "What the fuck's the deal with Mark with Mark Andreessen's Twitter likes?" So people will actually dig through the likes of prominent people, or not even prominent people, nobodies, and catalog this as though this is evidence in the case against them. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's a it's a double edged sword. The uh, the like monitoring um, along those same lines. Keep an eye whenever there's a pylon, either internally in your Slack channel or externally on Twitter. Keep a close eye on who isn't saying anything because because of the asymmetry here. If uh, we saw this recently, I, I forget the context even, but everyone was piling on me for some reason. Dan Savage because he's a mensch stood up and defended me and he had to deal with like a three-day shitstorm over it. He was a trending topic. So why would anyone do that? But during a pylon, see which of your colleagues are just not saying anything or keeping their mouths shut because that makes it more likely that you can put them on the list of people who might agree with you, right? Yeah. And there's also, you know, I don't know if this person is uh, what their actual job is, but if you're a person like us or there's lots of people like us who have staked out these sort of um, positions in media – there are clearly opportunities there. People are, are, for some reason, hungry for the sort of content that we produce and people like The Fifth Column and Barry Weiss and Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald. These projects are doing well. So if you want to try, try to like become a brand, become independent in your own right, there's a way to do it. There are risk to that and cost to that as well. But it's not as though you cannot make a living once you have been. Obviously, every case is different. But uh, it's not as though, you know, both of us are doing totally fine, even though it's probably true that we would never get hired at the New York Times at this point. I think that's tricky, though, because so it depends so much on your situation. You and I were always like somewhat voicey, opiniony writers. So totally. we that that lends itself to starting our own things. My Substack, you're writing for Barry, our, our podcast. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm making this up at random. I'm not going to say anything about this girl's specifics. But like if you're a 
you know, a producer, a, yeah, a producer, right. an editor, or a, a writer on a specific beat, on the climate beat, on the uh, law enforcement beat. I don't. I don't think there's a lot of opportunities for you out there. There's a sub, certain subset of jobs where they only exist within traditional news uh, institutions, and that's where you have to be particularly yeah. careful. Right, and if you don't want to pivot to culture war beat, which I don't think that people should do, because it's important that these other you know things that's are ours. That's our shit. Right, that's ours. That's ours. Get out. Get out. Then there are other opportunities, but it's just not going to work out for everybody. I think Donald McNeil is a good example. I mean, he was close to retirement age anyway. But let's say. Um, he wanted to work more. I, I don't even for like a top tier science journalist, if you're just a journalist, just a reporter, you don't have that like voicey bullshitty, whatever that, that we're, we just build up a career doing. I don't think he could like really have make as much money just like being a freelance independent COVID reporter. Oh, I no. think that gets much tougher. Oh fuck now. Freelance rates yeah. are terrible. I don't know how they would be for someone like him, but for the most part, freelance rates are terrible. Donald McNeil, after he uh, was ousted from the times, he is now publishing stuff occasionally on medium, which I think was a misstep because he could monetize that by going to Substack, especially after all of the attention surrounding him. But still, you make a good point. Like his beat is is COVID, it's science, it's hard news reporting. And what does well on these platforms is not not in every case, but for for people like us and in our sort of milieu is is culture war stuff. Yeah. And and that what you're saying is sort of what I'm saying though. It's not just the freelance rates are low. I think even um Donald McNeil who who is at was at the basic tippy top of science writing i'm not sure he would make that much money on substack because there is not the same appetite for just straight news reporting and also he's well, he's yeah there is the, i mean the number one uh earner on substack is that woman who does history stuff yes she's an outlier though if you but she's yeah, an exception um, yeah. and if you go down that list you'll see the rest it's all some form of ideological content without that much uh reporting, reporting. yeah absolutely the other thing that, that you could do in this position is just lean in, go all woke, and get a job at the new Gawker. Woke Gawker. Yeah, you should do that. Uh, or you could just go far in the other direction, become like a fascist sympathizer, because there's there's some money there, too. What do you think pays better, uh, Gawker or your Sturmer? This is, it, gets tr- it gets tricky, because people act like there's this thing like you're a grifter, and like uh, being a member of the intellectual dark wave brings amazing monetary rewards. <laughs> it's, it's not called the intellectual dark wave. Dark wave, dark web. But dark it should wave. be. <laughs> I'm go listen to some dark wave after this. Yeah, that does sound like an emo genre. I, I think it's complicated. I think all these different ideological niches, the top few people make a lot of money. I'm sure Brett Weinstein is doing wet really well, but is is Rob- well, he's got he just got demonetized. That's true. Over the um vaccine or ivermectin stuff that we're not going to get yeah. into because i don't know anything about we're we're never going to get into it please stop asking us to cover it <laughs> no. we're not going to talk about it well but but it's like for every one of him there's is robin d'angelo not doing well is ibram x kendi not, there's clearly right what, setting aside which of these peoples are grifters and i think people use that term too promiscuously there's clearly room for a few winners in all these things but the the problem is like to just be a journalist with a beat doing your job keeping your head down does not make much money unless you latch on within one of these institutions right and this is part of why the the hollowing out of the media on the local level has been so problematic besides just the effect on communities when nobody is covering the school board or the city council or the police or whatever uh for journalists it's also bad because there are just fewer and fewer jobs and so you end up at these either these national outlets or or which most of which are owned by conglomerates um pay shit 
not much opportunity, and you do have to work within the bounds of the institution. If you were a 50-year-old, we've said this before, and I mean, there's not that many of these guys and gals left, but if you were a 50-year-old at like the Baltimore Sun or whatever, covering city hall or crime, and you get laid off, that's it. Where, where are you going to turn? Where, where else can you bring your services and your skills? Dude, I'm in a, I'm in a Facebook group called like plan B for journalists or something like this. And it's depressing. And the answer to that question is mostly people go into press and communications. They go into PR. I thought plan B for journalists was going to be uh, something very different. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How to get rid of that little journalism baby in, uh, inside you. Uh, my one other piece of advice for our correspondent is to practice what I call identitarian judo. And this is a technique where one of the frustrating things about like going up against these moral crusader types or like fighting back against their worst stuff is, is they claim to speak for different groups. And it's very hard because uh, you can't, it's hard to fight that if someone's like, I speak for the oppressed African Americans. Of course, a lot of the time they're No, I speak for the oppressed African Americans. (laughs) I think we are two of the blackest podcasters around. That's it. We don't need to compete. We both got it. The only person less black than us in podcasting is Camille Foster. (laughs) I'm trying to think. What about Alex Goldman? (laughs) Camille Foster and then Alex Goldman. Get those two on a podcast. Um, At some point, we should return to Reply All of that show's trajectory, but that's a separate issue. Um, So so when – when a lot of this impulse toward moral crusading was leading to terrible journalism that went very soft on like police abolition and only focused on the most radical activists rather than the people who like work day in, day out to make their cities safer and policing better, you can look at polling of African Americans and say, we're not covering this issue in a way that respects what this group wants at the level of surveys and averages. And of course, the broader complaint there is like in the last election, there was a lot of movement toward Trump among all these racial groups that that are treated as though they're all sort of radical leftists. So when I say identitarian judo, I mean sort of use their own thing against them. Say, okay, you're saying we speak for this group. This group seems to disagree. Isn't that a problem if we want to actually hold up that social justice mantle? Let's see how well this works. Yeah, yeah. Email us back in a week after you've been fired. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, send us the name of your substack. I've gotten so many. They peaked last year shortly after George Floyd, but so many emails not only from journalists, but from academics too, who just feel very trapped. Uh, uh, similar language to this, what this woman said. They just don't feel like they can do their jobs well because of who their colleagues are and this this sense of sort of mutual surveillance. Yeah, I had coffee today with a, a freelancer who's trying to get a foothold in the industry. And man, I do not really have good advice for anybody, especially if you're in this sort of, like this person's in, in healthcare, um, trying to balance the like inclusivity versus fact problem. Uh, yeah, so so hopefully this person, if uh, if you email us back and you have updates, we will relate them to the audience. Uh, we're always eager to hear from other people about your newsroom meltdowns, especially if you can send us screenshots. <laughs> screenshots. Yeah. This is the great thing about uh, about distributed offices is all this shit is happening via Slack instead of at the like literal water cooler. All right, Katie, any other any other thoughts for this this person? Good luck. I recommend HTML, Java, Flash. Is that still a language? Katie, that's mean. She's going to do fine. She's going to do the idea. She's going to just take my techniques, the identitary and judo, the like policing, and, and we'll be fine. The <laughs> Good like luck monitoring. with that. Put on a little cop hat when you're doing the like policing. <laughs> All right, so this leads in pretty naturally to the another story we want to talk about. 
changes at NPR, right, Katie? Yes, they are redesigning the tote bags. <laughs> um, no, NPR today announced that uh, they have changed their ethics policy. So previously, if you worked at NPR, and this is also true of um, of public television at any NPR member station or PBS member station, you sign a pretty strict ethics code that prevents you from doing any sort of political advocacy. And I know this because I, I worked in public radio and I signed the ethics code. And then I, I hosted a show for uh, the local um, local PBS television station here in Seattle. And I was reprimanded for saying that Trump looked like a smash pumpkin, um, which I should have been because I signed I signed the fucking ethics code. They probably should have dug into my tweets. But he does. You're just re- you're reporting a fact. He does. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And they also, in my defense, they probably should have done some due diligence before they hired me. <laughs> That's true. Let me just read the article NPR itself uh, put out on this because there's some nuance here that's worth noting. So this is Kelly McBride, the public editor. NPR rolled out a substantial update to its ethics policy earlier this month, expressly stating that journalists may participate in activities that advocate for, quote, the freedom and dignity of human beings, end quote, on both social media and in real life. The new policy eliminates the blanket prohibition from participating in, quote, marches, rallies, and public events, end quote, as well as vague language that directed NPR journalists to avoid personally advocating for, quote, controversial or, quote, polarizing issues, Uh, blah, blah, blah. So... The new policy reads, NPR editorial staff may express support for democratic civic values that are core to NPR's work, such as, but not limited to, the freedom and dignity of human beings, the rights of a free and independent press, the right to thrive in society without facing discrimination on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, disability, or religion. And then uh, this is, to me, the most interesting part. She writes, is it okay to march in a demonstration and say Black Lives Matter? What about a pride parade? In theory, the answer today is yes, but in practice, NPR journalists will have to discuss specific decisions with their bosses, who in turn will have to ask a lot of questions. Uh, so what do you what do you think about all this? Uh, well, I, okay, so the article itself is pretty interesting. We'll put a link to the show notes. A lot of people pointed out that this phrase, they can advocate for, quote, the freedom and dignity of human beings. Well, does that also include people like pro-life activists? And <laughs> Kelly McBride actually does get into this in the piece. The piece itself is is a little bit more nuanced than I think the conversation um, on Twitter sort of lended itself to. I also think that there's something interesting here. Is it okay to march in a demonstration and say Black Lives Matter? What about a pride parade? NPR people go to pride. Pride to me does not feel like a political i think i guess it is political but pride doesn't feel political in the way that say a blm rally or a anti-vax rally or a pro-life rally in the beginning yeah for sure but now pride is a fucking party party. and i'm telling you there are a lot of npr staffers who go to pride so that doesn't that doesn't really fit in there to me yeah i i mean so what did, what did she say further down about things like abortion rallies and conservative causes like do do is there just discre- some journalists will find the changes less than satisfying as someone who writes and reviews policies for newsrooms of all kinds i see them as a solid step in the right direction they didn't answer some of the thorniest questions like what if a journalist wants to picket an abortion clinic or demonstrate in, in support of women's autonomy over their bodies 
Although I guess okay, so wants to picket an abortion clinic, not not uh, be the person screaming abortion is murder. I guess that it's not you can't even imagine that an NPR staffer would would be the person on the other side of the abortion clinic. Um, she continues, "What about a journalist who wants to express her general support of the Second Amendment, or a parent who wants to march in solidarity of families uh, with families and victims of mass shooting?" So what she's saying here is that these questions remain unanswered. But you can't, I mean, it can't be both. You can't say NPR staffers are allowed to march in support of the dignity of all human lives and also say at the same time, except pro-life. That doesn't count. Because to pro-life marchers, to pro-life advocates, yeah, fetuses count. Um, I mean, that, that that's to me, it's just a question of whether they enforce it in, in a fair way. Of course, there's so few conservative NPR staffers will like, and they, they're not going to want to stick their heads right. up. So maybe we won't have a, a test case. I, I guess right. um, it struck me like there's a pretty big difference between a, a, a music journalist who's just reviewing music, who goes to a BLM march. That's one thing. If you're a journalist who covers BLM and the fight against police brutality, that's another thing because like you, you do, people do this shitty thing where they're like, oh, so you're against Black Lives Matter. He's like, well, no, this is a specific organization or network of organizations and you might have to criticize their leadership or their tactics or there might be a scandal. If you're marching alongside, then that clearly makes it harder for you to do so. Right. You got, you said something a minute ago that I think really gets to the heart of the matter, which is that NPR isn't going to have this issue probably isn't going to come up with an NPR staffer, um, you know, wanting to march in favor of of pro-life or anti-abortion stuff because NPR, the number of, of staffers that they have who actually believe that is is minute, if not actually zero. And that I think gets to the heart of the matter or the heart of the problem with NPR right now, which is that NPR suffers from an, an amazing lack of diversity of thought. There was this tweet recently, I'm not sure if we talked about it on the podcast, but there was this tweet recently from the NPR interns account. And you saw, and so it was like a a, a photo of like a Zoom chat with all of their profile. You could see their faces in it. Incredibly diverse, like uh, very few white men. I think there was maybe one or two white men, but very diverse sort of racially, uh, gender wise. uh, But I'm going to like go ahead and speculate right now. And I'm guessing I'm right. There wasn't a single conservative in this group. And that to me is the problem with NPR, not because I agree with conservative values, but because it is a monoculture. It is homogenous. And that makes it boring. It's not surprising. Uh, anytime I turn on his story, I, I turn on NPR, I know exactly what I'm going to get. And so to me, this is the problem. This is why I'm frustrated with NPR is that there's so little there's so little diversity on the staff in terms of what people actually think, and also economic diversity, right? So you might have a tremendously diverse, like every color of the fucking rainbow. How many of those people went to private schools? How many of those people are are the the children of lock of doctors and lawyers? A lot of them, because this is the the milieu in which they operate. So I think NPR needs to hire some fucking conservatives. They need to recruit from community colleges. They need to get rid of credentialism so that you don't have to have a fucking graduate degree or even a college degree to work there. Um, There are ways that they could diversify their staff in a meaningful way that isn't just about race or gender or how many pronouns are represented, but actually represent the American populace. They need some fucking Orthodox Jews on their staff. You know, they need some, they, seriously, they need some people who grew up in trailer parks. They just need something that is different because it is so stale and predictable. 
someone close to me, uh, I don't remember, either texted or emailed me. They referenced how you did that thing where you'll turn on NPR and then, oh no, you wake up and then you turn it on. And when they mention race, it's time to get out of bed, right? It's like yeah, alarm clock. Yeah. This is a, this is a listener, a listener keyed me into this excellent way to force yourself out of bed in the morning. But yeah, just turn on NPR throughout the day. The chances that they're talking about some sort of identity politics are basically a fucking hundred percent. So this person um, emailed me or, or texted me to mention they had talked about some bad COVID-related thing, and they they then they just add this thing like basically saying, and of course it it hits queer people harder. Why does COVID quit hit queer people harder? It, it it clearly made no sense. It was clearly something where no one had any data. They just reflexively need to mention these identity categories whenever you bring anything up, which makes it. I think increasingly unlistenable. Absolutely. And I wish that I could just say that, that this was just the news shows, but it's not. It's Radiolab. It's This American Life. It's shows that aren't actually under the NPR banner, but the broader public radio network. I I don't want to – the reply all thing is so interesting when you get into actually what has happened to that show since it's reckoning. It's just yeah, – a lot of shows are good at one specific thing. Like like our show is good at anti-Semitism. We're not – if we turned away from your anti-Semitism, we it wouldn't be blocked and reported. Our show is good at making love connections. That's true. Oh, fuck. We have to read some of those, don't we? Yeah, we do. All right. All right. Uh, anything else? One other thing I think it's important to note here is that NPR is fundamentally different from almost every other news organization in this country. NPR is not a privately owned company. It's not publicly traded. It's not owned by one fucking family. It's not controlled by shareholders. NPR is a public source. It is on the public airwaves. They get government funding. There have been attacks on, and admittedly, a very small percentage of their funding comes from comes from uh, comes from the feds. Most of it comes from you know the sale of tote bags. But the reason this is important to me is because NPR, since its founding has faced attacks, particularly from Republicans who want to defund NPR because of NPR's bias. NPR's bias that has been clear for years. I just happen to notice in the past four years somehow, but is getting more and more clear every day. And this move saying it's okay if NPR staffers uh, go to BLM rallies or whatever, that they participate in politics, this is going to make them more vulnerable to attacks from the right. So from a perspective of somebody who has been a sustaining donor, I don't think I am anymore because I'm too fucking frustrated with it, but as somebody who really deeply cares about public media and thinks public media is a should be a resource for everybody for the good of the country, they are making it easier for their enemies to attack them. And tactically, I just find that very foolish. Yeah. This tweet by Ian Milheiser, who's at Vox, he writes about like legal affairs. This seems like a he he links to the NPR piece announcing these changes. This seems like a pretty significant moment in the fight over whether journalists have to pretend that democracy and fascism are equally good. That's always a line. I think that's sort of bullshit because because these issues are much more nuanced than that. It's a fucking straw man. Yeah, it really is. Um, all right. Anything else on this one? No, nope, I think that's it. All right. Uh, that out of the way, housekeeping, you can always reach out to us at blockchainreportedpodcast at gmail.com, subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockchainreported. There are, there's quite a collection of glamour shots that our listeners have been making of you on the Blocked and Reported subreddit. Jesse, have you seen these? I have. This was similar to when my offhanded joke about dating a horse a year and a half ago gave birth to a whole... Joke. Deep scare quotes, people. Deep scare quotes. <laughs> right. 
joke. Uh, similar to that, I made an offhanded reference of like photoshopping me into a Lolita outfit. And oh, they did it. There were some of them. They did it. But then it, now the last one I saw was Alex Jones on a horse on a beach. And then I'm wearing some kind of bikini top. A lot of them have me in cargo shorts. It's interesting. Cargo shorts and a bra. And a bra, yeah. So it's uh, there's a lot going on. I don't think this is what you just said is a particularly good advertisement for the subreddit versus never going there, but uh, <laughs> there's other stuff. It might give you nightmares. It just might. Uh, barpod.org for merch and premium subscription, patreon.com slash blocked and reported. We... We're giving our patrons a, a special fourth bonus episode this month. Uh, we we give people at least three extra episodes a month. You also get early and ad-free access to our free episodes. And even better, you get the chance to find true love. Yes, we have um, instituted our questionably legal and certainly reckless personals program. And I guess, uh, do you want to read a few more of these? Sure. So first off, the way this works is patrons, if you want to place a personal ad, send us a, a note directly through Patreon. And for anyone else who wants to respond to one of these ads, send us an email at barpodpersonals at gmail.com. Give us a little information about yourself. Let us know who exactly you want to connect with, and we will forward that email on. Can I ask you a rude question? Please do. If I were in your position and it was my job to forward these emails, I would have immediately forgotten about it and just let them pile up. Have you been actively making love connections? I forgot about it until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> but I did. I did. We had a handful of responses, most of them all to the same person. So our man in Philly who advertised that he's into bong hits, you got some, you got some messages coming to you, buddy. Good for him. I, I hope that that works out. Uh all right. Shoot, you want to read a few? Sure. I'll take the first one. I'm a 43-year-old lesbian from Stockholm in possession of two cats and an amazing sense of humor. Since lesbians are apparently a dying breed, what are the odds that there is another Swedish lesbian out there who is also single and listens to Blocked and Reported? Probably pretty low. But if this applies to anyone listening, she and I are clearly meant to be together. It's not fate. It's statistics. Shorter, fitter version of Jesse. That's impossible. I put <laughs> <laughs> that's such a horrible thing to think about just like my exact dimensions but just like sort of squashed Ugh. yeah i mean the only thing good about you is your height so exactly. <laughs> kind irreverent professor loves animals seeking intellectually curious woman who's either into or willing to overlook my star trek tattoo Ooh, interesting 42 years old my name is maddie and here's my love connection elevator pitch Imagine being a lonely early 20s age adult in the greater Sacramento area who's a fan of Blocked and Reported. Sounds terrible, right? My solution, email me and maybe we can have be slightly less lonely. Slightly less lonely is probably the best we can, we can go for. Uh, slightly, yeah. 29-year-old lesbian in Georgia seeks lesbians for friends or dating and to prove others still exist. Your lesbian extinction theory is catching on. <laughs> Are y'all out there? I'm an academic and training nature lover and secret optimist. You know, this is actually bad for me because this is in direct contradiction to my self-appointed label as the last lesbian left in the world. I bet all these people are faking it. They're just dudes. They're, they're just dudes. You know what they are? They're ethereal bisexuals. 29-year-old <laughs> gay white male socialist Trump voter with a big dick looking for love in Chicago. Let's get day drunk and go to the art and then go to the art institute. Gay white male socialist Trump voter. Someone just won their, their bingo game. <laughs> All right. Is that enough for this week? Let me do one more. A Midwestern emotionally distant. Ooh, this is my kind of person. And weird 27-year-old gay dude uh, seeks lovable douchebag. <laughs> I would have been perfect if I'd been single and gay. I'm emotionally distant and I'm a douchebag. Living in Minneapolis, then moving to San Francisco at the end of the summer. 
looking for someone to cuddle up with, have engaging conversations with, and do adventurous things with. Must be willing to make up a meet-cute story about how we met. Don't know how I feel about we met through a podcast classified app. Oh, come on. That's so much better than we met down at the stable. Yeah, seriously. (laughs) All right. If you guys want to connect with any of these people, email us at barpodpersonals at gmail.com. And if you want to submit one of these, you got to send it directly through the Patreon messaging system. That lets me filter out uh, our patrons because this is a benefit for our patrons. It's just $5 a month, folks. Patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Okay, so this last segment, you're going to explain to me something I know nothing about. Okay, Jesse, the main character of this particular story is a woman named Nadria Tucker. Nadria Tucker is a TV writer, or she was a TV writer. She's a former writer on WGE America's Underground and Sci-Fi's Krypton, as well as the CD, CW show Superman and Lois. Are you a big Superman and Lois fan? Huge. No, I, I feel liberated that like I don't know anything about any current pop culture anymore. Just I'm just floating above it all. So in November of 2020, uh, Nadria Tucker announces on Twitter that she has been fired from the CW show Superman and Lois. Here's what her tweet said. Some personal news. Wednesday, I got word that my contract on Superman and Lois won't be extended. My services no longer needed. My outline and draft subpar. Obviously, I disagree with that last bit, lol. This, after months of flagging Me Too jokes and dialogue, of me defending the Bechdel test, of me fighting to ensure the only black faces on the screen aren't villains, of me pitching stories for female characters. If I sound better, that's because this one stings. I've been assured by colleagues that I was great in the room, so I know I'm not nuts. I doubted whether to post this, but my own mental well-being demands that I do. The only way this shit changes is to expose it. There's this thing a lot of like, especially younger people do, where they think that the best thing to do when they get fired is immediately go public with the details about how unfair it was. I just, so whatever you're about to say next, I, I still just would question this strategy because you're you're saying, I don't know, it's just a bad idea. You're you're, you're painting yourself as someone who can't really roll with the punches if something truly unfair happened they'd find some way to expose it but i've seen a lot of this so i just i don't know i noticed that okay so jesse hold on to that thought so this was covered by huffington post new york daily news uh in the huffington post piece the subhead is the tv writer says she was dropped from the new cw show after pushing back on racist and sexist storylines and tropes this brings us to what happened this week jesse have you ever been in a tv writer's room I have not. Have you watched 30 Rock? Oh, I love 30 Rock. Okay, so basically all that I knew about TV writers' rooms until this week came from watching 30 Rock. But in a writers' room, what you have is these long days where people are sitting together, pitching ideas, discussing plot lines, discussing characters. It's very free-flowing, very um, free association. You can sort of imagine it. Not all that different from what might be a pitch meeting at uh you know at a newsroom yeah probably like a little bit more offensive and with like more jokes i would assume yeah okay so during these during these days the writer's room will have a writer's assistant who sits there and basically transcribes everything that happens during the day and this is apparently a coveted position an incredibly difficult position and an underpaid position. So it's like taking minutes at a board reading, but some of these minutes are going to be deeply personal. So maybe you're talking about like your past history of drug addiction or something embarrassing from your past or the fact that you like wet your bed until you were 18 or something like that. Like it can be very personal. And both of us have worked in newsrooms. This stuff comes up when you're talking about story ideas. Yeah. 
And oftentimes, this can also include spoilers for the forthcoming show. So, Nadria Tucker posts the following on Twitter. Would anybody be interested in reading writer's room notes? Just curious. I've got some laying around from a genre show I worked on. The season isn't over yet, but nothing in my notes would be a spoiler since according to WB and WB, that's Warner Brothers, they own the CW network. I didn't work for the final two episodes. That, I mean, I don't know much about that. That seems like an autumn, that's got to be a huge violation of just like norms and professionalism within this field, no? Yes. So she posts 19 pages of writer's notes. Unfortunately... Pretty quickly after that, uh, that tweet with the 19 pages of writer's notes was replaced with the following. This tweet from Nadria Tucker has been withheld in response to a report from the copyright holder. So she, she, so she follows up. She says, Warner Brothers issued a DMCA, that's a takedown, on those screen caps because they feel they own the writer's room notes. Interesting. I feel they owe me money, lol. So what she's saying is that she worked on these last two. So she was fired. And this, according to several of the screenwriters that I that I that I talk to, is just a part of working in television and film. Everybody gets fired. Oftentimes, it's just because it's not a good fit. And this woman in particular was promoted to a producer position. So writers are like like a low level writer position, not incredibly well paid. That 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 money bumps up really quickly when you get a producer credit or when you get a producer title. So she had only written apparently 3 episodes of television and then she was given this this producer title. So she should have been making like pretty good money for this. Um she was fired by the uh the the showrunner for for Superman and Lois. His name is Todd Helbing. And um, according to my sources, this is just like a very common thing. Oftentimes, if it's just a bad fit, you just get fired and you you sort of keep it to yourself. You move on. It's part of the process. And it's this very insular community. So the last thing that you want to do is is burn those bridges with your with your previous employers. So, OK, so it sounds like she just she has to have known not to post those shows. It's just such a weird thing to screw up. Here's what happens. She later, she apologized. She's deleted all of these tweets by now, but I took screenshots. She later apologized and said she shouldn't have leaked them without the consent of the writer's assistant because the writer's assistant, the, that person's name was on the notes. And the writer's assistant, who is also on Twitter and has a pretty funny Twitter account called Bitter Bitter Script Reader, um, that puts the writer's assistant in an incredibly bad position because the writer's assistant is the person sort of filtering all of these all of these thoughts. This is all shit that is totally, totally confidential and classified and should never have left the room. So in response to this, there's this outpouring of support for her, much like the outpouring that there was when she came out uh, and said that she was fired from Superman and Lois because of racism, except this time it's not coming from people in the industry. It's coming from like anti-racist types and people who love TV and observers, but people who don't actually understand how this shit works. So people in the industry, I found like one tweet where someone, a show, a, a, a TV writer said like, why are people talking about leaking the notes when the real scandal here should be the fact that she wasn't paid? And we don't actually know that she wasn't paid, but I found one blue check mark uh, TV writer who was like standing up for her. Everybody else was either silent, including POC scriptwriter or POC TV writers, um, or they were just subtweeting her, her or directly tweeting like, "What the fuck? This is an insane thing to do." So here's a tweet from from a TV writer named Brian Scully. 
So his bio, he has a little rainbow flag. He's got his pronouns. He says Black Lives Matter. So you can sort of pick up from those signals what his politics are. He probably agrees with her on all this stuff. But here's what he said. Don't post room notes. Don't post room notes without clearing it. Don't post room notes for something actively in production. Just don't. If I posted even a corner of a single page of one of one day of room notes from this room, I would be murdered and they'd be right to kill me. Here's another quote from a uh, from a TV writer whose uh, whose Twitter bio or Twitter name is Jill anti-racist and pro-trans writes Weinberger. So you can also see where her politics lie. She says people share really personal stories in the room. And while they don't always make it into the news, sometimes they do. You use your worst personal stories and those of the people, you know, as springboards for story ideas or as ways to develop a new character. Um, So what this woman did was just totally verboten she just violated this confidentiality and in fact most of these rooms the writers are required to sign ndas in part because what she's sharing what these what these writers room notes are is spoilers for the show which of course are heavily guarded i don't know if writers assistants are always asked to sign ndas but this is apparently a pretty standard part of the process so she also violated uh violated that so the basic outcome of this is that this woman as one one uh, TV guy told me she nuked her career for Twitter validation from strangers. She's probably unhirable. And this guy also told me that uh, this is the kind of thing that makes white showrunners hesitant to hire black writers because they're worried that any kind of incident will lead to allegations of racism. So, and this was, this was validated or verified by several of the other people I talked to. She's harming people like her for Twitter validation. And there's no way, according to everybody I talked to, that she will ever be hired again. Even though in some cases, like in the first case where she said that she was fired for racism, there's this huge outpouring of support. Well, now that support is all gone because she just nuked her career. Yeah. I mean, it gets back to what I said. Like, uh, it's... Burning professional bridges online while you're still within a field. And, and it is that validation that I think is the reason people do it. it. It's such a bad idea. Even if you're you're very lucky and you get like the sympathetic HuffPo right, right up, like just, just don't do this. I mean, if you have a real complaint, find a way to just don't tweet it. If people tweet too much. Right. And this is what someone I talked to told me. They said, if you have a real complaint, you go to the guild, which is their equivalent of the union, or you go to your agent's. Let them work it out behind the scenes. And maybe you can, I'm sure people would make the argument that this should should all be public, that, uh, you know, that, that there's a long history of, of gatekeeping and oppression in, in Hollywood. Of course there is, but that's just not the way that this system works. And she just violated all of these rules. So, so one of the sources I talked to told me this. And I think this speaks to sort of the broader, the broader climate in, in TV writing and media and, and uh, in many different industries right now. They said, there are so many people afraid to speak now in rooms because there might be someone in there ready to throw them all under the bus, throw their boss under the bus, or just get the project canceled or shelled. It's a terrible vibe for an industry that, while not perfect at all, previously embraced an anything-goes culture in writers' rooms. You have to have permission to make terrible jokes, awful pitches, hideous, unforgivable ideas in order to get to the good stuff. You have to trust that the people you're showing your soft underbelly to will not judge you for your bad ideas, but most importantly, won't expose them to the rest of the world. Because people are so scared of talking about race right now, some opportunists are using this as a way to up in the culture in writers' rooms and on set and take over power for themselves. I mean, it, it bears a lot of resemblances to what's going on in some corners of journalism. The only difference being, like that person said, like there's an extra layer, um, 
level of like creativity and throwing everything at the walls and, and seeing what, what sticks there. When I was in college, I wrote for a publication called the Every Three Weekly at Michigan that was directly an Onion knockoff. And our weekly meetings were fucking crazy because it's just like dumb 20 and 21 year olds trying to like outgross one another and out outrage one another. And the idea of like being judged for what you say in a moment like that, uh, I don't know, man, like by the standards of today, if we'd recorded any of those meetings, it could have been career ending. Absolutely. And frankly, it's not hard to imagine the same sort of thing happening in journalism. I've never heard of like a newsroom meeting uh, notes getting leaked, but it's not that hard to imagine because you can often this stuff like we've reported so many stories where it appears to be the problem appears to be racism. It appears to be sexism. And then you actually dig into the story. And it's not about that. It's about personal grievances and power grabs. Well, I mean, remember, this stuff does get leaked because part of the reason Mike Pesca is on whatever his weird hiatus is, is is there was like an offhanded line about him not respecting non-binary identities that was clearly leaked from an internal yeah, meeting. Yeah, and the, and the Slack room. Uh, well, good luck to to this woman. She seems to have made some bad decisions. But if you're if you're especially a young online person, use this as a cautionary tale. Even if you get fired, even even if it's unfair, do not burn your professional bridges. Uh, online. As I say that, I realize how often I've done that. So do what I do as I say, not as I do. Or, or have a successful podcast before you do that. Yeah, it is. I totally get the impulse to burn the whole fucking thing down. Uh, in the words of Reza Aslan, um, when you feel like you've been slighted, whether your grievances are legitimate or not. But as my mama always told me, keep that shit offline. Mom always said. Well, the other thing is like, so HuffPo will be there for you because you can provide them content. You can provide them an outrage yep. story that will get them clicks. When you can't find a job, HuffPo will not be there for you. So just realize who your actual allies are. Unless HuffPo goes into the TV development. Which maybe they will. All right. Anything else, Jesse? Nope. This has been Blocked Reported. I'm Jesse Singley. Remember, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm going to leak a lot of stuff from the Bar Pod Writers Room. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember... I look forward to seeing NPR's Ari Shapiro at the next rally for Other Ken Rights. <laughs> <laughs>